Well, we're going to worship the Lord together. In Psalm 27, we read, One thing I ask of the Lord, this is what I seek, that I may dwell in the house of the Lord all the days of my life, to gaze upon the beauty of the Lord, and to seek him in his temple. For in the day of trouble he will keep me safe in his dwelling. He will hide me in the shelter of his tabernacle and set me high upon a rock. Well, amen. Well, we're going to sing in our opening hymn. This is a beautiful older hymn before the throne of God above. So let's stand as we sing. I recently had the privilege and honour of staying at Balmoral and spending time with Her Majesty the Queen. She was in good spirits, full of fun and strong in faith, a genuinely remarkable lady.
This is a time of grief and thanksgiving for a life well and purposefully lived. Her family are in pain and sorrow, and I know they will value our prayers for them. Let us pray. Gracious and good Father, full of love and peace, you are from everlasting to everlasting, ever good and ever true. Your greatest gift to us is eternal life, and in this hope we place our trust. Today we give thanks for the life of Her Majesty Queen Elizabeth, who has now entered fully into the promise in which she believed. Long has she reigned over us, offering support and courage, a steadying hand in difficult days, and a kindly presence in times of peace and prosperity. We thank you for our life, so rich in years and in service, for our unwavering commitment to country, commonwealth, and every generation. For our trust in Jesus Christ, our devotion to the church, and our respect for other faiths, receive our thanks today. May she rest in peace as she enters fully into your promise. In their loss, comfort our family, especially our King as he assumes his new responsibilities. Assure them of your presence and peace, granting to them the consolation of cherished memories and the hope of your promised kingdom. And these prayers we offer in the name of Jesus Christ. Amen. First Kings chapter 16 and there at verse 29. In the 38th year of Asa, king of Judah, Ahab, son of Omri, became king of Israel. And he reigned in Samaria over Israel for 22 years. Ahab, son of Omri, did more evil in the eyes of the Lord than any of those before him. He not only considered it trivial to commit the sins of Jeroboam, son of Nebat, but he also married Jezebel, daughter of Ethbaal, king of the Sidonians, and began to serve Baal and worship him. He set up an altar for Baal in the temple of Baal that he built in Samaria. Ahab also made an Asherah pole and did more to provoke the Lord, the God of Israel, to anger than did all the kings of Israel before him. In Ahab's time, Hiel of Bethel rebuilt Jericho. He laid its foundations at the cost of his firstborn son, Abiram, and he set up its gates at the cost of his youngest son, Segub, in accordance with the word of the Lord spoken by Joshua, son of Nun. Now Elijah, the Tishbite, from Tishbe in Gilead, said to Ahab, As the Lord, the God of Israel, lives, whom I serve, there will be neither dew nor rain in the next few years except at my word. Amen. Well, I'm also going to read just a handful of verses here in Matthew's Gospel in chapter 11. And at verse 11, I tell you the truth. Among those born of women, there has not risen anyone greater than John the Baptist. 
Yet he who is least in the kingdom of heaven is greater than he. From the days of John the Baptist until now, the kingdom of heaven has been forcefully advancing, and forceful men lay hold of it. For all the prophets and the law prophesied until John, and if you are willing to accept it, he is the Elijah who was to come. He who has ears, let him hear. Amen. And may the Lord bless to us the reading of his precious word. What's happening? Well, a new era has dawned in Israel. As I mentioned, it was the darkest hours for Israel. Ahab, more evil than any king so far. His father had arranged a marriage for him. And the possible reason for this marriage was because of trade. His father possibly thought that for Israel to have good trade with all the other nations, then if, I, if my son is married to one of the Sidonian princesses, and of course this marriage is arranged, and this princess of the Sidonians is called Jezebel. And she has gone down in history as being such an evil woman. She led Ahab even further astray. We're told that between them, Ahab and Jezebel, they built here a, a temple for Baal. You'll notice that in chapter 16 at verse 32. A temple was built for Baal in Samaria, the capital of Israel. And then Ahab had organized for an Asherah pole and with images of all the different gods on it. That was to be built as well and set up. And then, oh, the worst they could do. Joshua, hundreds of years before, had cursed the city of Jericho. And he placed a curse on it that it would never become a fortified city again. That it would never be fortified, that it would never be rebuilt in that way. And what does Ahab do? He organizes for Jericho to be rebuilt. Now the issue was not just building on the land in Jericho. That wasn't really the curse. The curse was that it would become a fortified City. So when we read here that Ahab arranged for Jericho to be rebuilt, don't just have a, this idea that, oh, someone set up a wee house in Jericho and poor Hael, his two sons, were killed because of it. No, the Ahab was very specific that this would become again a fortified city. And Hael, as he began to rebuild that city, his own children suffered the curse that had been on that city. Joshua had said the city would never be rebuilt like that. No. So it was the darkest hour. But also spiritually. Did you notice the priests in these days? They were so corrupt. These were the priests of God. They were corrupt to the core. They had no heart for God, for his word, for his presence. No. And many of these priests who were now put in place 
weren't even of the tribe of Levi. They weren't of the Levitical priesthood. They weren't called by God. You had these priests who came in who were not called of God. And oh, they didn't care much about God either. The priesthood was corrupt. And then, of course, Jezebel herself, she caused her priests then to take over and to rule the religion in Israel. And so you have these priests of Baal now telling the church how they should live and what they're to believe and what they're to preach and what they're to say. You don't hold on to this word of God of yours. You don't believe in that old gospel. You're not to believe in, in, oh no, don't believe that word of God of old. That's culturally irrelevant. And these priests now of Baal begin to cause the religion of Israel to become more, dare I say it, more politically correct. These priests of Baal began to direct how Israel were to worship. Oh, and in time, Baalism, the religion of Baal, actually ruled Israel. They worshipped Baal, many of God's people who claimed to look to God, Jehovah, were now also worshipping Baal. Jehovah was only one of many gods now that they worshipped. But Baal was really the one that began to rise above all the others. And Jehovah. They thought that Baal was the one who dictated whether it was going to rain or be sunshine. And he was also known as a fertility god. So whether you were to have children or not depended on your worship to Baal. Now for Israel... That was crucial. They had such a heart for future generations. Their children. They also had, they were dependent on their crops. And so in these dark hours, the question has to come, where is God? Where is God in all this? It was a mess. Israel had just, oh, they had just turned away. It was spiritually dark. The religion, that true religion, that faith in God was now so corrupt, you could hardly recognize it, whether it followed the Bible or not. You just couldn't recognize it. It was a mix of everything. This new religion in Israel and if you spoke to them, they would tell you, oh, we worship Yahweh. We worship the God of Israel. But yet they would have their other wee gods. But yet, here in the Bible, we're, we're called to question. And that's a question I have to say that arose when I was reading about these kings. And when you follow these kings, you just think, Lord, where are you? Is that not the question that many have in our day? Even atheists so where is your God then when there's so much wickedness and when there's such evil in this land? How can you possibly believe that God exists? Where is he then when it's so dark and 
Everything is just awful. When people are allowed to murder and all the knife crimes that are going on in Glasgow and London and Bristol and Birmingham and every place, there's just wickedness. So where is God in all this? And you know, it's great when actually the Bible asks the same question. So where is he? Lord, where are you? I know you are real. I know you're the true and living God. But Lord, where are you? In all this, Lord, even in my circumstances, have you ever prayed that? Have you gone through a dark time? Or as the old mystics used to call the dark night of the soul? Have you ever had that experience where you just feel shrouded in darkness? You're confused. You just don't know what to think anymore. And all you can pray is, Lord, where are you in all this? Well, Kings wants you to ask that question. And so now, here in 1 Kings, at chapter, the end of chapter 16, and now in verse 1 of 17, God tells us, I'm here. I really am here. Yes, it was an age of corruption in the corridors of power. There in the courts of the politics of the day, there was such corruption and there was such confusion over the land. People didn't know what was right or wrong anymore. Everyone just believed, well, whatever feels right to you, it must be right. And whatever feels wrong is wrong. And people were so confused. And there was also such a contempt for the word of God. Although people would say, well, whatever feels right must be right. But if you dared to claim that you're following the word of God, no. That was condemned. And so here, they're in an age of contempt for the word of God too. God, where are you? And God raises up Elijah, just like Moses. In that days of darkness in Egypt, as God raised up Moses, now God raises up Elijah. And the answer to that prayer, or to that question, is actually in Elijah's name. His name is Elijah, God is Yahweh. And that's God's response. I'm here. And so Elijah stands before King Ahab. Yes, weeping may endure for a night, but oh, joy's going to come in the morning. Darkness may be overwhelming the nations of this time, but oh, the light is going to dawn. You watch. And so Elijah is now raised up. I like that. In a time of crisis, God shows up with his manifest presence. God was always there. To those who had fallen away, he may have felt distant, but God was there. And Elijah now stands before King Ahab. God is Yahweh. The true God is Yahweh. It's not Baal. It's not all these other gods. It's not all these other images that you're worshipping of stone and of brass. God is Yahweh. The promise keeping God of old. And so here Elijah now begins to declare the name of God. God is sovereign. Whatever you're going through, remember, 
God is here. He really is for you. He's not against you. God is in control. He's in control of the weather. He's in control of everything. It's not Baal. And so here we are now face to face with Elijah. So who is Elijah? He just appears out of nowhere. Where where we're told that he's Elijah the Tishbite from Tishbe, there in Gilead. He's a journeyman of Gilead. He's a prophet. We're told in James 5 that Elijah was just like you and me. He wasn't some superhero. He wasn't one of these Christians that you look to and say, wow, I wish I was like that. No, James reminds us that he was actually like you and me. He was weak. He had his failings. He suffered from depression. <laughs> he had his ups and he had his downs. There were moments where he experienced the presence of God in, in wonderful ways. He would pray and God would answer instantly. He knew answer to pray, to, to his prayers. But then there were times where he was in despair. He would even question God, where are you in all this mess? Lord, you brought a revival to the mount there in Carmel. But where are you now? I'm in a wilderness. And Lord, why don't you just kill me? Here's Elijah on the mountaintop experiencing a revival that came across the nation. God revived the nation and he goes away in depression. Why? Because Jezebel threatened to have him killed. Oh, Jezebel was fuming when the nation turned back to God. Oh, she was mad. And she wanted now Elijah to die and to pay the consequences of all that had happened. And he gets depressed. And he goes off into the wilderness. So Elijah was just like you and me. Are there times where you feel discouraged, disappointed, depressed? Elijah felt like that. Elijah knew what deep depression was. He knew what it was like to feel, I don't want to live anymore. He was a man who, yes, he knew the mountaintops. He knew happy times. He knew times of joy. But he also knew days, months, years in the valley. We're told also that he was a man of intense, fervent prayer. And that's what I want to bring out this morning. Elijah, he was a man of prayer. Even in his weakness, oh, he kept praying. He prayed in the valleys. He prayed through the storms. He prayed through all the difficulties that he faced. In the deepest hour of darkness, Elijah was a man who prayed. He was a man of prayer. He had a secret life of prayer with God. No one could see it. No one knew that Elijah was a praying man. But oh, you saw the effects of his prayers though. You knew he was a praying man because of what happened in his life and the things that came, things that, were, that changed. You knew, oh, he's had a secret life of prayer. 
Remember what we shared a few weeks ago about prayer? When you go into your closet, go into the secret place where God sees you. And he says, and he will reward you then openly. When we have a secret life of prayer, God will reward us. You're going to see things happen as you grow in your prayer life with the Lord. And so Elijah, he was a man who had a secret prayer life with God. And oh, he was rewarded for it. He was a man of prayer, but he was also a man who knew and lived for God. He knew the Lord. In Daniel, we're told that those who know their God shall do great exploits. If you really know your God, you're going to do great things for him. That's what Daniel tells us. Elijah was someone who knew God. He devoted his life to prayer, to having a secret life with God. Yes, he prayed, but oh, he also came to know God in experience. Not just knowing about God. It wasn't just, Elijah didn't just read the Bible. He didn't just read about Moses. He didn't read Deuteronomy and say, all right, okay, that's what God's about. No, he came to know him in relationship. And he lived for him. He lived for God. He didn't just read the Bible. He wanted to be obedient to the Bible. Whatever God said, he knew, God, you, your, your word is the best for my life. I know when you ask me to do something, it's actually for my best. If the world tells me to do something that goes against your word, Lord, I think I'm going to listen to you. That was Elijah. Oh, he loved the word of God. He was passionate he said, before whom I stand. Elijah was a man who stood before the Lord. He was passionate, yes, for the word of God. But we also notice he was passionate for the presence of God. I think that's a lovely statement. As he speaks to Ahab, he said, I stand before God. <laughs> I've had times with the Lord in prayer. I know what it is to be in the presence of God. And I've stood before the Lord. And I can tell you now, God has spoken. He's whispered to me. And he's told me that it's not going to rain. There's going to be a famine in the land until God gives me a word to say that it will be lifted. When there was no rain, when there was a famine in the land, it was a sign of disobedience. It was God's judgment upon the land. And Elijah just said to them, I'm sorry, but I've just been in the presence of God. And God says that there's going to be a famine. There's going to be no rain in this land until God brings another word. Elijah knew the Lord. He loved the Lord. He was a man of prayer. But always remember... He was weak. He suffered from depression. He had a downside too. Does that not make you feel, oh Lord, I'm glad there's someone else like me in the Bible. I'm glad there's someone else who knows what I'm going through. I'm just glad there's someone else who asks the same questions that I'm asking right now. The American preacher John Piper said, Desire that your life count for something great. 
Long for your life to have eternal significance. Want this? Don't coast through life without a passion. Don't coast through life without a passion. If you want to get anything this morning out of our reading, I want you to remember Elijah was passionate for God. He was passionate for God. He would do anything to grow in his relationship with God. He would do everything to protect this relationship. And as I said, and I'll close with this, I said at the beginning of of what we were sharing that this is not about Elijah, and it's not. Elijah was pointing to someone else. Elijah was preparing for someone else to come. The whole story of Elijah, you're, on, you're, you're sitting on the edge of your seat listening to the wonderful miracles and the stories, but you're waiting for someone else. Elijah was preparing for someone else to come. And who do we read of but Elisha? Elisha is the one that he would ultimately anoint. Who was Elisha? His name means God my salvation. God my salvation. Elijah was preparing for God my salvation to come. And although we read more about Elijah, and we often share in Sunday school about Elijah, we don't hear much about Elisha. But did you know that Elisha did more miracles than Elijah? There's more chapters given to Elisha than Elijah. I don't know why we often think more of Elijah than Elisha, but Elijah was actually preparing the way for Elisha to come. And Malachi chapter 4 at verse 5 tells us that Elijah is coming again. Elijah is coming again. And of course, Matthew's gospel that we read earlier tells us, Jesus said, if you can understand this, and if you're willing to understand this, Elijah has already come. Who was Elijah? Well, of course, we read in the Gospels that John the Baptist came in the spirit of Elijah. And what was John's ministry? To prepare the way for Jesus, our heavenly Elisha, God our salvation. So Elijah only prepares us to encounter Jesus. That's what today is about. As we read of Elijah, someone just like you and me, Elijah would say today to you, he would say, come on, take my hand. I want, you, I want to bring you to someone. See when I get depressed, see when I get discouraged, see when I'm even really happy. This is who I go to. This is who I, I, I've fallen in love with. This is who I love just speaking to. This is the one that I actually spend most of my time with. Do you want to meet him? That's what Elijah would say. Come and meet Jesus. God, our salvation, the one who can deliver us this morning from whatever darkness we experience. And oh, it is my prayer that although we go through dark times, even here in our generation, 
Oh, I know, I know that the Lord of glory, he reigns. He is our King of kings. And one day he's coming back and he is going to wipe every tear. He is going to bring us into that heavenly kingdom with him forever and ever. A new era is going to dawn and it's coming with Jesus when he comes back. And all who have put their trust in him will join him in that kingdom, that eternal kingdom. And so today, can I encourage you? Oh, let's meet with him. Let's meet with the King of Kings. And let's also look forward to when he's going to come for us in these days to come. And so let's pray together. Father, we come with our emptiness, worries and our defeats. We come without excuses, blaming anyone but ourselves. Therefore, we come now and bow before you, acknowledging who and what we are. We confess we have sinned in our words, in our thoughts and in our actions. Forgive us, clean us and heal us, for you're the one who can make us whole. Lord, your presence lifts us, your grace amazes us, your power overwhelms us and your love excites us. No matter what we bring with us, our hearts, sorrows, sins, bitterness or joyful praise, you always receive us as we are and transform what we bring. You fill us with gifts of your mercy and grace, transforming us more into the likeness of Jesus our Saviour. Father, we come to you in the name of Jesus. We come trusting that you will accept us in our worship. We come in the assurance of the love Jesus demonstrated in his death on the cross. Keep convincing us of your love. Soften our hard hearts and bring us to the foot of his cross. That we might be prepared to carry the cross daily for his glory. And in Jesus' precious name we pray. Amen.
And so may grace, mercy and peace from God our Father, God the Son and God the Holy Spirit be with you all now and forevermore. Thank you.